You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. Thank you so much for listening this winter Sunday morning. If one were to characterize life in America these days, well, there are lots of ways to describe it, but one of the ways, perhaps one of the more accurate ways, is that our free and open society has given us all lots and lots and lots of choices. We have enormous choices in variety, where to live, how to entertain ourselves, how to spend our money, what kind of clothes to wear, and on and on and on. All of the important aspects of life, we are, in all important aspects of life, we're provided with lots of choices, except one, the most important one, our governmental system. Have you ever wondered why in a country that prides itself, that thrives on honoring the freedom of all Americans to do as they wish so long as they don't harm another along the way. We are given so much freedom except in our politics. We are limited to, to count them, to political parties. Well, yes, of course, there are other political parties, but as we all know, the structure of political life in America is such that there is very little, close to no hope, that any political party other than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party will ever be able to influence life in America. Have you ever wondered how we got here? Who said we are to be limited to two parties? The irony is nobody said it. Well, then it must be the law. Nope, it's not the law. It just is. Can anybody believe that limiting choice in who governs us, limiting choice to just two political parties is healthy for America? Nobody. Yet that is the system. And it is almost impossible to change. Or is it? This morning, I... Proud to welcome to the show, Lee Drutman. Lee is a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America Think Tank. He, he has just written an important book, and I'd only ask, what took Lee so long to write the book? It is so needed. Lee has written Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Finally, finally, a scholar has uh, chosen to identify that the two-party system, the total absence of choice, identify that as an important issue. And it is my hope that Lee's book will start a discussion in America that will lead to redirecting us from the doom that Lee fears into a multi-party system, a system which most of the rest of the democratic world has. Lee, welcome to the show this morning. Great to be with you, Bob. I'm excited to talk about this book. Now, Lee, uh, to uh, give us some background, because it's strange because I don't think anybody has ever really thought about how we got to the two-party system, uh, because as I said, I think I'm correct. It's not done by statute. It certainly is not in any of our founding documents. It was an anathema to the founding generation. So here we have a system that is that nobody can really defend except the very few in power in the two political parties who benefit. So only the, those small beneficiaries can defend it. So tell us, give us some framework, some background. How did we get here? Yeah, so let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, a very good place to start. Uh, and we'll 
start with the framers uh, who you know, were doing something that was quite radical at the time, uh, writing a constitution to set up a system of self-governance. And they were quite concerned about political parties. Uh, they uh, thought that if you had political parties, uh, the country might well split in half uh, and become ungovernable. And so they set up a system of governance uh, that would decentralize power, uh, bicameral legislature, plus an executive branch, plus a judicial branch, plus federalism. And the idea was that it would make it very difficult for uh, political parties to form. And uh, the other thing that they did, without any debate or discussion, was uh, that they uh, basically carried forth the tradition of plurality voting, which was a 1430 British countryside innovation. Uh, whoever gets the most votes win, wins, uh, also known as first-past-the-post elections. Uh, and that turns out to be the voting system that is most likely to generate just two parties, because if only one winner uh, can emerge, then third parties become spoilers, and all the energy goes to the top two parties. Uh, and you know, I think had they understood what they were doing at the time, they might have thought differently about it, but they thought that they were going to make political parties uh, obsolete through this rather de- this de- decentralized political system. Now, in many respects, uh, the system succeeded for about 200 years. We, we had political parties. We had just two political parties for most of our history, but those two parties were really these broad, overlapping coalitions that didn't really stand for much. In fact, throughout most of American political history, the critique was not that the two parties were too far apart. It was that they were too similar. Now, to to your first point, it, it is certainly the case that Americans didn't really have much meaningful choice. In fact, they even had less meaningful choice, uh, and it was harder to, to know what the parties actually stood for. Uh, but you know, it, it sort of worked with our, our system of governing, which requires this broad coalition building, broad compromise, and so it kept the American political system broadly stable. Well, now what we have, and this is really a, a new and, and, and distinct period in American political history, is a genuine two-party system with two parties that have no overlap and really stand for very different visions of America, and they are both uh, roughly equally represented in Washington so that every election uh, is is basically a toss-up election in which power is up for grabs. And this has created a very, very dangerous uh, situation for our democracy because it's raised the stakes of every election to this impossibly high point. Uh, in which everything becomes emotional uh, to to the extreme, and it's also created a, a set of bizarre incentives in which both parties uh, are uh, in a position where they want to have this narrow but elusive majority, so it means that they are demonizing the other side to the extreme, and whoever, whichever party is not the majority party is refusing to compromise, which makes it very impossible to get anything done in Washington. So we have this uh, extended gridlock in which nothing can happen, no no uh, public policy can be made, uh, and you know, with these occasional moments of unified government in which policy policy moves in a very extreme direction one way or the other, uh, we have an electorate that's, that's going crazy, and we have no resolution in sight. And this whole process is what I call a, a doom loop because it is continuing to escalate and escalate to the point where we're losing a, a sense of shared fairness, a sense of legitimacy, and that's what democracy depends upon. We have to acknowledge that we have disagreements, but that we have a fair way to resolve those disagreements, and that is rapidly disappearing. I'm very worried about a legitimacy crisis uh, in the 2020 election, if it's close. I I think we are seeing the the breakdown of of the foundation uh, of our democracy, and the two-party system is responsible for that. And again, uh, I really want to emphasize this, that, th- that this is uh, a, a new development uh, in having two distinct parties, but there is no going back. We, we are in, a, in a, an upward ratchet, a feedback loop, 
uh, a doom loop. And the only way to break out of that doom loop is to change that electoral system that the framers imported unthinkingly and to uh, reform the way we vote and join most of the rest of the advanced democracy world and have a, a form of proportional representation in which multiple parties can get representation and voters can have more choices and everything can is no no longer has to be this zero sum all or nothing winner take all high stakes emotional battle uh, that is again driving us all crazy. What I'd like I'll get to we'll get to an important part of your book which is the solutions but I'd like to offer to you Lee and to our listeners two observations about the two party system. First first observation when I was growing up I went to summer camp and the highlight at least for me of summer camp was color war. In color war which was towards the end of the 8 week summer camp season the entire camp, from the kindergartners through the counselors, was divided totally at random into, in our case, the green team and the white team. And you ate together, you sat together, and there was competition, athletic competition, singing competition, and the like, um, to see who won the most events. And you kept score, and that was it. That was the highlight. The point I'm making is, when we were divided up, instantly, everybody on the green team kind of didn't like those on the white team. They became instant enemies for a short period of time. And not that there was anything mean-spirited, it's just they were on the other team. It was totally random, but it caused this polarization in a wonderful experience. I mean, it was, it was positive in the competition, but it was totally random. And, and the second, and it, that's what politics feels like today. Now, as to the randomness, the second observation is, on prior shows, I have analogized or labeled the political parties as nothing other than marketing cooperatives. They are a group of disparate uh, people with different beliefs who get together, join together in a cooperative because if they work together, even though their beliefs, beliefs are not aligned, they will get the holy grail that is elected office. Now, an example of that is if we look at, at random, the Democratic Party, in the Democratic Party, <clears throat> minorities in general, blacks in particular, are an important component. They vote overwhelmingly Democratic, even though many aspects of traditional Democratic politics, such as the importance for public education and eliminating school choice, is harmful to many members of the inner city, especially black community. And we can go on and on and on. So here we have um, the Democratic Party, and the same can be said of the Republicans, which take positions that are harmful to some of the members, but they suck it up for the goal of getting elected. So the, the two-party system forces people to align with others who they wouldn't otherwise align with. In a multi-party system, nobody has to hang out with people, be aligned with people they don't agree with. The, every, every type of political belief uh, has a home in a multi-party system. So Americans are forced to make an absurd choice of supporting a party they might not agree with for 40% of the time because they disagree with the other party 45% of the time. That's not the way political life should be in America. So, Lee, uh, how much do you think... Uh, did the polarization, the two-party system, how much is that a result? Because you identify it as sort of really occurring somewhat recently. I think you identify 2010 is when it really got baked in, and I'll ask you to explain that. Uh, but how much of that, after you explain the significance of the 2010 election, how much of that is a function of 
ex- external events such as social media, the the breakdown of mass media into a lot of components, into non-political factors, so that the baking in of the two-party system was external and not political. Well, there's a lot there to, to chew on. Um, so let, let's start with, with the color war point, which I think is a, a very important point, the, the green versus the white and the uh, extent to which this arbitrary division into, into two teams can uh, turn people against each other. And, and what your summer camp did is it replicated a well-known psychological experiment called the minimal group paradigm, which has been done many times in which uh, researchers put people into two arbitrary groups, and turns out that they start to really dislike each other uh, when they're set into two groups. But interestingly, uh, when you put people into three or more groups, people don't hate each other as much. It's just something about this binary condition uh, that seems to really drive people against each other, good versus evil, black versus white. Uh, something in our brain appears to have this kind of us versus them uh, switch that gets turned on and, and, you know, really, really turns us against each other. Uh, but it only gets turned on when there's just two groups. Now, to your point about the, the parties being these sort of, uh, I guess, motley coalitions uh, in which people make compromises in order to support one party or the other. Uh, you know, I, I think there there are a couple important points there. Um, one is that the parties actually are more diverse than they sometimes appear to us because we only see them at their very uh, top level uh, and the political figures who represent them in Washington. And and this is important, and I think one of the reasons why we would be better off as a multi-party system, because I think there is much more diversity in this country than gets represented in a simple fight between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. Uh, however, this diversity within both parties, which are, I think, still somewhat big tent parties, creates a real challenge for the party leaders, because how do you keep all these folks happy and aligned with your side? And the way you do that is by reminding uh, your your voters that the other side is even worse. And, you know, you, you see this on both sides. Uh, you see well, Democrats you know, obsessing about Trump and, and turning Trump into the devil, but you saw that with Republicans and, and Obama, that the way to unify a party is to find a common enemy. And this is why you see so much negative partisanship in American politics and so much lesser of two evils uh, rhetoric, and you know, that both sides say, well, you know, you might not love our side, but the other side, they would destroy the country. And you know, th- this, again, turbocharges that us versus them, green versus white, red versus blue thinking, and uh, it really drives us all crazy, and it makes compromise impossible. Now, I, I do want to kind of argue a little bit with you on that point that, that people shouldn't have to compromise because I think politics is all about compromising and nobody gets uh, everything that they want and you know, politics is about building coalitions and about making trade-offs uh, but I think the, the question and the real difference between a multi-party system and a two-party system is when those coalitions and compromises form. Do they form before the election, which is the case in the two-party system, or do they form after the election, which is often the case in the multi-party system in which you have some form of coalition government? And, you know, I I think it's much better for them to form after the election, uh, because if they form before the election, voters can't send clear signals to what it is that they... uh, want most. They have to make an awful lot of trade-offs before the election, whereas after the election, parties can say, look, here's how much support we have for this set of positions, and then bargaining can can occur based on that. Uh, So I think it's important to recognize that compromise and coalition building are inherent in politics, uh, but the two-party system actually makes them much harder uh, uh, to be a part of governance, they make them part of, of pre-election campaigns, and both sides get locked in, 
and they get turned against the other side, and that's when the real danger to uh, self-governance happens. Now, the, the other question that you raised is the question of, of of how we got here, which is you know a big a big part of my book, which is again called Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop for those listeners who are just tur- tuning in, uh, and you know I I I don't. You talked about social media and media fragmentation um, and, and other external causes. I, I actually don't put that much stock in those explanations. I, I think that, that a lot of the change is uh, a, a function of the nationalization of politics and the long realignment uh, of the parties post-civil rights in which the Democratic Party became the party of cultural liberalism and the Republican Party became the party of cultural conservatism. Uh, and you know, that was a long process that really, I think, hit its culmination in the 2010s. Uh, you know, it started, it started in the 90s with the culture war politics uh, to really reach a level of, of saliency. Uh, you know, and that's when you saw Gingrich revolution change Congress. Uh, Gingrich was the first person to really nationalize congressional elections. And that was when Republicans uh, took control of Congress for the first time after 40 years. Now, for decades prior to that, uh, you, you had a long period of divided government, which actually was you know, ha- had its problems, but there was a sense that the Democrats were going to always be the party that was representing the House of Representatives, and the Republicans were you know, going to win the presidency most of the time. So both parties were able to work together because they weren't trying to win uh, this narrow majority. The other thing in that period from the, the mid-60s, really up to about 90, 92, was that you had within the two-party system, again, a multi-party system, that you had liberal Republicans, uh, who you know, were a little bit more libertarian, uh, um, particularly on the social issues, uh, and uh, you, know, you had conservative Democrats who were a little bit more populist, uh, and that meant on any given issue, uh, you could build a different coalition, so things didn't break down into this binary condition. But liberal Republicans began to go extinct, conservative Democrats began to go extinct, and that process played out in the 90s and the 2000s, and by 2010 it was com- completed so that we were left with really just two parties, conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats and everybody else was forced to either get on board with one of those two parties uh, or just throw up their hands and say, nobody represents me, our political system is broken, and I don't have a vote. You make uh, two, as we go to break, two really interesting and, in my opinion, important points. One, I learned just now from your correction of my comment that when I said, when I made reference to compromise and you pointed out the difference was whether compromise is pre-election or post-election, that's an important uh, correction to make. And uh, I was, without realizing it, referring to the absence of compromise post-election. And I I thank you for that. That's an important correction, helps me understand my thinking. And the other point is that when you pointed out that there were parties within parties, I can remember there were the blue dog Democrats who were Democrats who from the South who often voted with Republicans on certain issues. And the point being, I think that's a reflection of in those days, <clears throat> excuse me, in the last half of the 20th century, there was uh, less control by party leadership of how members of the House voted, and they were given more latitude. There wasn't that top-down control. So Southern Democrats, who had longevity, and therefore they were committee chairs, they could vote the way they wanted, uh, very different from Northern Democrats, and still survive within the party. And I think that's an important difference, that right now there is this lockstep voting, because as you said, uh, with Gingrich, uh, politics became very nationalized, which means, I think, that leadership in the House had very rigid control over the membership through lots of institutional tools which they had. Therefore, disagreement within the party post-election 
really didn't happen that much. Just an observation on my part. Uh, this is Bob Zadig. We are speaking with Lee Drutman this morning. Lee has written uh, an important book, a very important book, and thank heaven he has written it, and not a day too soon. His book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Uh, Lee argues persuasively uh, and with a sense of urgency that America is in a, his words, doom loop if we continue to be governed under a two-party system. Now, it is one thing to identify the problem, quite another to offer solutions. Lee, happily for us all, offers solutions. The solutions to our problem when we come back, we'll be back in 30 really short seconds. Please stay tuned. I'm Bob Zadig, broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. Book now available at bobzadek.com. Welcome back to the Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. This morning we are speaking with Lee Drutman. Lee has written Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America, where Lee argues persuasively um, and with as I said, a sense of urgency that the two-party system, which now is the bedrock of our political system, is harmful to us. It is leading us down a road from which there may not be any return. Uh, I offer just one observation on the two-party system, uh, and that is this. America, since its founding, our political DNA has been a fear of, a distaste for, an abhorrence of any accumulation of power in any institution, public or private. The founders built a governmental system designed to neutralize and minimize an accumulation of power. That is the system of checks and balances we all know about. The reason we have checks and balances is to have power neutralize power with the result that no power survives. And that has been the way we have lived in America for 240 years. Also, in our economic system, we have generally a free market system, more or less, but yet we are sensitive to distortions in the free market system, and we have a body of law called antitrust law, which prevents the establishment of monopoly power. We don't like it when uh, one institution uh, with government Governmental help often um, establishes a monopolistic system and imposes its will upon the public. So we abhor accumulation of power, we abhor monopoly, and yet in the most important area, which is the exercise of our political rights, we tolerate both monopolistic power in the two-party system and the accumulation of enormous power in the two-party system, such as who, who establishes the rules for the national, quote, debates, uh, who gets on ballot access. All of those important political rules are decided by those in power, the two-party system. So we have a system that we should, one would think, 
naturally abhor, and yet we tolerate it. Now, Lee, um, thank you for your book. And in your book, uh, you uh, offer some suggestions, many suggestions, about how to undo the two-party system. Because given that it has uh, now, through the tools that I have mentioned, baked itself into the system, it is very hard to change. So, and you can't change it from the top down. It's just too hard. So give us some idea of what a different system might look like and give us some idea how listeners who right now presumably are pretty gosh darn worked up over the two-party system, how might they participate in the change? All right. Well, let's start with some alternatives. And to understand uh, what things could look like, uh, we have this this weekend. There, Ireland is holding elections. Uh, Ireland is a is a, a democracy that has had a system of multi-winner ranked choice voting for almost 200 years, uh, and uh, there's two concepts in there: multi-winner and ranked choice voting. Now. Folks may be familiar with ranked choice voting because it is a uh, a system that is actually used in several cities in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley. Uh, And it's a system in which rather than having uh, picking just one candidate, uh, you can rank your candidates in order of preference. And what that means is that if you want to support a libertarian candidate, you can support a libertarian candidate first, and then if that candidate gets eliminated because he or she doesn't have uh, uh, enough support in the, uh, among first preferences, your vote gets transferred to a backup choice. So you get to vote your heart, and then you uh, get your vote to actually matter. And this would certainly help third parties get a foothold. Now, uh, in the most places in the U.S., including the Bay Area, uh, ranked choice voting is used for single winner, winner elections, which means that it, the votes are uh, retabulated until a majority uh, winner uh, emerges, um, and that and that's better than the the plurality system that we have. It's also a system that uh, ranked choice voting is also used in Australia, a few other countries around the world. Uh, Ireland has a multi-winner version of ranked choice voting, in which uh, rather than representing a single district, uh, legislators who who go to their parliament uh, come from. Uh, multi-winner districts, typically about three to five members, and that creates a form of proportional representation uh, and a multi-party democracy in which you don't have to get 50, uh, 50% or a plurality of, of the votes to win. You can you can win with uh, 17% uh, in a given district if you have a five-member five district. And, you know, the, the fundamental principle of proportional representation is that parties should be represented in a legislature in proportion to their popularity in the electorate. So if the Libertarian Party were 15% of the electorate, the Libertarian Party could get 15% of the seats in the uh, state legislature. Now, that's not the system that we have. Uh, we have this very antiquated system that most of the world has left behind long ago, of uh, plurality single-winner elections. Uh, and, you know, I think we could... Uh, decide that we want to leave it behind, too. And, and you know, we, we've innovated in a lot of other areas, and yet in, when it comes to voting, we are stuck with a very antiquated technology. Uh, now, what could folks do about it? Um, you know, California has an initiative process, uh, and uh, if, if folks wanted to, to get involved in a campaign to change California uh, to a, a proportional system for its state legislature, I think that would be a, a wonderful idea, uh, as well as bringing it to local municipalities. Uh, and, you know, there's as a as a proof of concept. So I think there are plenty of rooms for activism. I mean, you're you're certainly right. Change is probably not going to come out of Washington. Although I'd note that there is a bill called the Fair Representation Act that has a few co-sponsors, uh, including I believe Ro Khanna, who's a, a congressman from from out in the, the Bay Area. Uh, that would create this system uh, for the entire country. Uh, but I think more likely uh, it would start in states like California, which have long been, been innovators in political reform. Uh, so I think there's, there's a tremendous opportunity there. 
Now, in the Bay Area, where it has been in effect for a while, are voters, A, aware of it, and B, are those voters feeling more enfranchised, do you think, than voters in other parts of the country? And if yes to the second question, why isn't this sweeping the country like wildfire, at least initially in local elections? Well, it's certainly starting to, to gain tremendous momentum. Uh, Maine has become the first state uh, in the country to use it statewide for its for its federal elections. There are more and more cities that are adopting it, rank, uh, adopting ranked choice voting. Uh, New York City uh, it just became the largest city in the well, just the largest city. It it it, it has last it last. Uh, Past November, it passed a, a citywide initiative to bring ranked choice voting to New York City, and passed with about 75 percent support. So it, it certainly is catching on. Uh, I think there are a lot of folks who who are now understanding that the problem uh, with our politics is that we have an electoral system that makes it very hard for third parties to compete. Now, at the city level, most cities are pretty much one party dominant or, or nonpartisan. Uh, so it doesn't have the same, quite same effect as it would have at the state or national level, although it has uh, led to uh, campaigning that is a little more civil and, and cooperative, and it has, and voters tend to tend to like it once they once they get used to it because it allows them to express the full range of preferences rather than having to just pick one candidate. Uh, so I think it is catching on, and I think as we understand. How much of, a, of an existential danger the two-party system uh, provides to our continued experiment in self-governance? Uh, I think we will see even more uh, attention and organizing effort behind electoral reform. So I guess in the House of Representatives, which really is, I think, where the change would be felt the most uh, under your system, an electoral district. Uh, for the House of Representatives, would uh, there would each district would send not one member to Congress but three members or something like that, and yeah, or even five, and the members, or really, so that would mean the population, uh, the membership in the House of Representatives would increase dramatically from 435 to some other number. And I should point out, uh, Lee, before you comment, that the founders, if I'm not mistaken, originally envisioned a representative representing, I think, 40,000, I seem to remember, Americans. And if we had that system today, we'd have a couple of thousand members in the House of Representatives. So in reality, by increasing the number of voters that are represented represented by one member of the House, we are really diluting the importance of one vote. Uh, so I think I'm right about the 40,000, but wouldn't your the system you discuss in your book result in a much larger member or membership in the House? Well, there are two ways you, you could do that. You could combine five existing districts into one. So, for example, I think California is about 50, 50 members of, of Congress. You could split Instead of having 50 districts, you could have 10 five-member districts, uh, which means that you might actually be able to, uh, to, to elect a libertarian from the Bay Area. Uh, now, uh, you could also multi- you could also make the House larger, and I recommend uh, increasing the House to about 700 members in the book. Although I'd certainly be open to to larger uh, uh, something even bigger. Although I, you know, just as a matter of, of practicality, I think even. You know, I'm already talking about some pretty radical changes here. Um, now, on the on the you know the original vision for the House, the the 19, uh, 1789 vintage of the House had 65 members, each representing uh, 30,000 constituents. And uh, Madison uh, actually the he he had 12 of of what we know as the Bill of Rights. There were actually 12 amendments, of which the first two didn't make it into the Bill of Rights. And the, the first amendment that Madison proposed was a, an apportionment amendment, which he said House of Representatives is people's house, so representatives should be close to their people. So for the first hundred members, we're going to 
have it 30,000 constituents. For the up to 200 members, we're going to have it 40,000 constituents. And then when we get over 200, uh, we're going to have it 50,000 constituents. And that's as high as it could possibly go. Now, today it's 765,000 constituents per representative, so it went a lot higher. Uh, for for a good portion of American history, the House actually did continue to increase its size uh, with each census as the country grew bigger, so it went from 65 members to the 435 we know today. That was in 1911, and the country has more than almost almost quadrupled in size of population since 1911, and the size of the House has stayed the same. Uh, so I think if we want to have a House uh, which is better set up to represent the diversity of the American people, which is uh, um, uh, can, can, contains members who are, are closer to the people, uh, then I think a, a bigger house is a, is a great idea, and I think it pairs quite nicely with a vision of, of multi-party democracy. Now, we'll take a caller in a moment, but um, that was it, your point about after... 1911, we stopped increasing the House. Was that by decision, or people just just plain stopped and nobody knows why? Because continually increasing the membership in the House seems healthy because it gives um, the vote more value. It values each voter more so than not increasing the House. So was there a conscious decision not to to stop increasing the size of the house, or was it practical? There was no more room for chairs. Well, the, it was. There were some people who who thought that the house at four hundred thirty-five was that was that was enough. Uh, but a lot of a lot of that impasse came from the fact that there were a lot of fights over how to apportion the new seats. You know, nobody could agree on that, and eventually the, the forces of, let's just keep it at 435, uh, you know, because a lot of the, a lot of the growth uh, of seats was in parts of the country, uh, you know, cities that were growing, immigrant populations, and so there, you know, there, there was a concern by some of the more conservative rural members of the House that uh, their power would be weakened if we continue to increase the, the size of the House. Uh, so, so it wasn't were, random. There was a calculation about uh, let's not give these voting citizens any more power than they have. They have too much already kind of mentality. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, that's painful to hear. Uh, we have a uh, Lee, we have a caller on hold. He's been on hold for some time. Uh, Jacob, uh, good morning. Welcome to the show again. What's on your mind? Yes, uh, your guest, uh, Lee, uh, I wondered if he could comment on the uh, current or, or the recent state of the so-called diverse parliamentary system in Israel and what a paralytic nightmare that has been. That kind of defeats his argument about the binary paradigm terror uh, that he's describing uh, so uh, could he comment also on uh, how the binary system argument that he's propon- uh, advancing on your program, Bob, this morning, how that affected the impeachment where you have foreign financial entanglements on both the Democratic side and the Republican side uh, with the Bank of China involvement even, I think, in Ukraine with the um, Pelosi family. Well, let's, let's not get too family. far afield. And why didn't Mitch McConnell recuse himself because of the Bank of China uh, foreign entanglements with his family? You're asking Lee to write a book on the air. Uh, so, Lee, mm-hmm. if you could just uh, comment on Jacob's first point about uh, this, uh, the system in Israel, which is a binary, which is a parliamentary system, much in the mold of the British system because of its political history. Uh, Is that an example of a system which works? Can we learn from that and other parliamentary systems? Or are there advantages to our system over a parliamentary system? Yeah, and I I, want to make a a, a something clear that we often conflate parliamentary systems with multi party systems. 
Uh, but th- there are two two dimensions here that are that are separate from each other. One is two party versus multi party, and then the other is parliamentary versus presidential. So the the UK is basically a two party system, but it's a parliamentary system in which there is no separately elected president. Uh, most European countries are parliamentary systems without a separately elected president. France being the the one exception there. Uh, or the major exception. Um, Israel is a parliamentary system with a form of hyper-proportional representation um, in which the entire country is one electoral district, so there's 120 seats apportioned with a very low threshold, uh, which creates a system with, yes, way too many parties, I believe 17 parties in government. Uh, and, you know, I mean, historically, Israel has uh, managed to have different coalition governments. You know, the recent impasse is certainly challenging, and I think a, a lot of it stems from Netanyahu's stubborn uh, politics rather than the, the system itself. And I'm not sure what political system would handle somebody with Netanyahu's stubborn, uh, aggressive uh, stance. The, the other problem with Israel's political system uh, is that uh, basically there there are Arab parties, but they are treated as pariah parties. So you have about 20% of the seats in the in the Knesset uh, in, of, of a party that nobody will ever form a coalition with. So that really limits uh, the ability of coalition formation. And certainly you have a lot of, of these smaller splinter extreme parties that may get hard to form a coalition. I think 17 parties is too many. Uh, you know, and frankly, I'd rather have two parties than 17 parties. Uh, but I think the ideal is like four to six parties. And the, if you look at the, the, the countries in Western Europe, Ireland, New Zealand, uh, you know, the, the examples of, of really top thriving, healthy democracies, uh, you see that they tend to have about four to six parties. And the thing that we know, uh, thanks to lots of political science and lots of experience with multi-party democracy, is that you can more or less manage to get four to six parties based on the electoral system that, that you set up. So if you wanted to have 14 parties in the U.S., you would have one national election with, you know, in which everything would be proportional. Uh, and that would create a lot of parties. That's not the system that I'm proposing. I'm proposing a system uh, that is used in Ireland, uh, Australia, and, you know, would probably create about four to six parties uh, given given the electoral rules. So I'm not recommending that we become Israel. There are, it's important to understand that there are many versions of multi-party democracy around the world and many versions of proportional representation. And and what I recommend for the U.S. is a much more modest version. Now, Lee, as to, um, uh, I, of course, often identify, uh, I'm a libertarian. I don't necessarily identify with the libertarian party as such, but libertarian describes uh, the what governs my how I vote and how I look at issues. But as to the average voter who, let's say, typically will agree if you're a registered Democrat or Republican, you agree with some of your party's positions and disagree with others. Uh, the, a system you propose, how would that voter that I have just described, how would they feel, experience a difference in how they vote, how they feel about voting, and their relationship to the government they voted for? Well, in multi-party democracies, uh, voters tend to feel better about the system of democracy because they're more likely to find a party that represents them a little better. You know, I, I think there might be a, a libertarian party in the U.S. if we had a multi-party system. Uh, it might be a 10, 12 percent party. Uh, there are in in most multi-party systems, there are parties that are classically liberal, uh, and sort of you know more more uh, restrained on government spending, but you know, but supportive of of immigration and and give people freedom to express themselves in their private lives. So I think you would more likely see a party like that. You know, I mean, I think... Even and you would have... Party- and in, in, in the House, in the House, for example, with an enlarged uh, membership in the House, as we discussed earlier, there would probably be, uh, probably be, a just as Bernie Sanders is a self-identified democratic socialist, there would be... S- Members of the House, one would assume, 
uh, who would be identified as and ran on the platform of democratic socialist and green and independent and constitutional party and libertarian party and labor party. So if you were in a minority in, in, in what you believed, you would at least have a seat at the table. You wouldn't have dominance, but you would feel represented. And most of the country, I fear, feels like a political orphan, that nobody in Washington or in state houses represent them. And I think as we wind down, Lee, we're running out of time, but if you could comment very briefly on, wouldn't that be healthier in that even if you didn't, your beliefs didn't carry the day, you would have a seat at the table. Isn't that a laudable goal in itself? Very briefly, Lee. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, I absolutely agree. And if you look at polling, about two-thirds of Americans say that there should be more than two parties. Uh, so certainly certainly, people want that. I think another important benefit of, of a proportional system like the one I'm describing is that your vote matters no matter where you live. You don't have to live in a swing state or a swing district in order for your vote to count. So you know, if you live in San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley uh, or many parts of the Bay Area, you know, you're, you're in a blue district in a blue state, and your vote is totally irrelevant. Parties don't care about it. Nobody's campaigning for your vote. Uh, nobody values your vote. In a, in a proportional system, your vote matters no matter where you live. And you know, people complain about the low turnout rate in the U.S. Well, people are not dumb, uh, and they know that in most places your vote why doesn't vote matter. Why vote if it so doesn't why matter? Why, 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 and exactly. if you don't have choices that you're excited about, you know? In a proportional system, if we move to a proportional system, voter turnout would shoot up in this country. People would be much more engaged, and I think that would be much healthier for the country. People would feel represented, people would feel motivated, and you know, people wouldn't... Lee's excuse me, Lee, but Lee's book, yeah, yeah, Breaking the Two-Party right Doom Loop, the, the case for multi-party democracy in America is a must-read. Have your vote count, perhaps for the first time in your electoral life. Thank you so much for Lee for giving us an hour of your time. And most importantly, thank you for writing your book. This is Bob Zadig saying so long for now. I'll be back again next Sunday. Sure look forward to it. <laughs>